0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our free email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, or straight from the tap at the website, SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Gua, and today I am in Washington, D.C. Well, actually in Arlington, but close enough, where I'm going to be taping a little batch of shows this week. Joining me from the rustic comforts of Goldcorn Holler, where he is overseeing the completion of what is shaping up to be a lovely new home on the southwestern outskirts of Nashville, Tennessee, is to me, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn, a man whose alarming undergrowth of beard reminded me when I stopped through Nashville recently and saw it why the modern science of forestry is wise to have recognized the importance of occasional wildfires to forest management, Jeremy, greet the people from behind that ridiculous Bromsian bush.
1: That's ridiculous, Kaiser. <laughs> Hello, people.
0: <laughs> ridiculous only in proportion to that growth under your chin. Anyway, Fay, <laughs> Fay doesn't like it. Fanfan has to. Say, I have to say she doesn't like it either. But but I like it. I think it's cool. It makes you look like a revolutionary.
1: Nobody likes it. <laughs> and that's
0: why you like it. Yep. So if those who carefully watch such things are to be believed, Xi Jinping has had a rather eventful and challenging summer. Uh, Many of us had just half a year ago described him as unassailable. Uh, He had been named as a core of party leadership. Uh, had come out of a party congress in 2017 with his own eponymous brand of thought, uh, now part of the party canon. And then this spring, he engineered the removal of term limits and is all but certain to stay on now beyond the two-term norm that had once prevailed. And yet there was evidence in the last couple of months, at least by the interpretation of some observers, that he might not in fact be At all unassailable. So today we're going to talk about Xi Jinping, about how he has sought to cement his position, uh, about how he has apparently sought to downplay or even eclipse the role that Deng Xiaoping played in reform and opening, uh, about the rumors that surfaced and the criticisms that bubbled up, and about the very problematic nature of political succession in an authoritarian nation like China. So we're delighted to welcome back as our guest, Jude Blanchette, who has repatriated now and uh, lives in the storied swamp where he now works as senior advisor and China practice lead for the Crumpton Group. Jude has been on our show a number of times to talk about neo Maoism, about Chinese nationalism, uh, and various things, Xi Jinping. Jude, welcome
1: back to Seneca.
2: Thank you very much, Kaiser and Jeremy. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Jude, yeah, it's really great to have you on the show again, and especially about this topic. Like Kaiser said in the intro just now, uh, not very long ago, just around the time that term limits were removed from the party constitution, most observers of elite politics in China would have said that she had so managed to secure his position at the top that he could not be touched. But this summer, there were a spate of rumours that Xi was under pressure, perhaps even quite serious pressure. Former leaders like Jiang Zemin, his premier Zhu Rongji, and even the oddly silent Hu Jintao are said to have been unhappy with this core business and a burgeoning personality cult. We also saw some open criticism of his rule from uh, respected academics and intellectuals. Can you give our listeners an overview as to what evidence people saw to suggest that they may have been trouble at the top? Lay out what it was that got people chattering about possible challenges to what many of us had assumed was an unchallenged authority.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's important to remember that for most of us who are watching China and analyzing China, the reason that we're talking about this is because someone starts to talk about it. And then, as is often the case in the China-watching community, these rumors uh, move their way around, around the room. And when they get back to you, it seems to indicate that uh, evidence for this has strengthened, whereas you're just hearing it again for the second time. So for most of us, I think it was beginning with the spate of media reports, starting with, with Chris Buckley's very good piece uh, a few months ago on uh, Xi Jinping under, under siege started this. But if you uh, read overseas Chinese media, if you look at what's uh, being said in Hong Kong and in Taiwan, and amongst the more uh, savvy China watchers, you do see, I think, some specific pieces of evidence uh, indicating that the status quo uh, has shifted since, as your intro mentioned, the the more triumphalist language after the 19th Party Congress, and certainly after National People's Congress uh, in, in the spring. So so moving back in chronology, we just saw the end of the Beidaiho meetings, which are uh, just uh, east of Beijing on, on the Bohai Sea there, where every summer the, this is the the literal uh, smoky back room of Chinese elite politics, where <laughs> well not only do senior current senior leaders, but also this is an opportunity for the the quote unquote elders. Uh, So past party leaders, uh, aging, octogenarians to come in and and make their perspectives uh, heard. We began to hear of rumors that there was now more open unhappiness with how Xi Jinping had been creating this burgeoning cult of personality, had moved himself so forcefully and quickly away from any notion of collective leadership, which had thought to have been one of the really core achievements of the Communist Party in the reform and opening period in terms of moving away from a Mao-like leader. So that was the um, that was the rumors that were, were being discussed. Of were they going to hold an enlarged Politburo meeting where they were going to uh, censure Xi Jinping, move him to the side, and maybe elevate one of the uh, potential successors, uh, Hu Chunhua, for example. Uh, up up to take his his position. Now, as it turns out, we really had nothing to these rumors other than that they were rumors. And like most listeners, I just heard them from somebody else. Hmm. But this is the way that Chinese politics operates. And if you discount the rumors, you're possibly going to miss what is an emergent sign of a of a split. But but as is often the case, we when we give these the hairy eyeball, we find that there's not much there. there.
0: So this doesn't pass the smell test to you then but uh, what would constitute evidence of a split, a schism? Uh, what would you look for if you wanted to conclude that yeah, there is dissatisfaction among party elites? Uh, so, and you know, what what would be proper evidence?
2: So up to this point, we, we've not seen any any open statement by any significant political leader indicating anything but fealty to, fear of, or support of Xi Jinping. So we've got again to to, to move back into some in terms of what are signs of of not of a, a leadership split. Um, Xi Jinping disappearing from the People's Daily for a few days, which which happened this summer, right. is not a sign of a leadership split.
0: How do you explain that then? That seems anomalous.
2: Uh, it does seem anomalous, but but some pretty close observers have have gone back and and looked at the same period, which was around the the August first anniversary of the People Liberation Army founding, and and saw that Xi Jinping was absent. Uh, from those periods in previous years as well, so there is a precedent for this.
0: They've also said that pre pre He, he's usually absent for a few.
2: Yeah that's that's often the that's often the case as well. We have to remember that a lot of the media coverage of Xi Jinping is cyclical and it undulates. The problem was, or this fed into the rumor spree right now because there's a convergence of what you could say are unique events. That were lending some credence to to this case of a, of a pushback. One other uh, I'll mention is there was a rather odd piece that was rerun by Xinhua on July 11th. I think was the date uh, about Hua Guofeng's personality cult in in 1980,
0: um, which again <laughs> the very ineffective personality very cult. very <laughs> ineffective personality
2: cult. But as we know, attacks on leaders are often done through historical you know analogies, and and this could be. Um, I think if you're if you're if you're arguing in front of a judge, the case of a Xi Jinping pushback, um, you would enter this into evidence. It's mm-hmm, not discursive, mm-hmm. I think, on its own. Um, but we saw very th- strange signs um, this summer that I think again uh, were somewhat supportive of a case. But there's something different between grumbling and an actual leadership split. Right. Um, I think did, Xi I'm- Jinping. Sorry, Jeremy, go ahead. S- sorry, to are out. I was
1: just, it, one of the suggestions uh, is that one reason she has been challenged is... Uh, or grumbled at, at least. Yeah, his perceived handling of the trade war and the U.S.-China relationship more broadly. Um, are you aware of any criticism, public and vocal, delivered behind closed doors, or even just tacit of the way she has managed Trump? And if so, how serious has that criticism been?
2: Um, so th- no credible rumors, uh, have, have arisen of an actual serious, uh, um, sort of slap on the hand for Xi Jinping from, from his handling of the U S China, uh, relationship. And I mean to just reiterate credible, we don't know of any single senior leader who we can, who we can prove has made a, uh, a an open declarative criticism of Xi Jinping, um, that being said, I think if we look at how China has moderated its tone vis-a-vis the U.S. over the past couple months, um, it's it's easy to infer uh, that there is a a course correction in China in terms of how it is dealing with the U.S. And if I can just step back for a moment, um, and this is this is my own personal interpretation, it, it is clear that the Chinese leadership c- catastrophically um, misdiagnosed not only Trump, and I think we often make this about Trump and about the U.S., um, but this is a broader pushback to how China has triumphantly come out and ripped the mask off, so to speak, on the party's role in all of society, Uh, the triumphalist language around things like Made in China 2025, the industrial plan, where whether it will come to fruition or not, is a uh, a tweetable shorthand for China's, you know, supposed plans for world domination. Um, so, this is about much more than China getting the u s wrong. Uh, I think china's PR strategy and actions in general have have catalyzed a pushback f- fair fair or not, and so uh, too we, much
0: chest thumping and crowing right
2: absolutely and i think um, I think just to take one example of this, and again, I think we shouldn't focus too much on the u s here um, there is a building uh, Quote unquote containment of China, of China across the globe right now that goes from Australia to New Zealand to the EU to Canada to UK, where right now you have an increasing tightening of China's ability to invest in key sectors and technologies in these countries. Um, and so um, that is a direct result of China's more aggressive behavior, behavior on this front. So um, if we're looking at costly mistakes brought about by Xi Jinping's more triumphalist language, um, I think the past 12 months has been an absolutely extraordinary rebuke of of Xi Jinping's policies here and so gone are the days of uh, China coming you know the the language we were hearing at the end of the 19th Party Congress last year of uh, this is China's time uh, it's our time on the world stage and we're going to we're going to seize the opportunity with two you know closed fists
0: so his 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 problems aren't limited by any means just to his handling of of relationships with developed Western countries, uh, as you suggested. You know, there were also bumps in the road that he's encountered, uh, reversals, for example, even in his his signature policy, the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, including Mahathir's announcement that he was canceling two major projects in Malaysia. Uh, and then he, domestically, too, you had this vaccine scandal recently, uh, the P2P lending scandal uh, that's now unfolding. Are all these things taken together enough to suggest uh, that she is really fretting about a loss of legitimacy, or should he be?
2: Yeah, I think we need to really separate into several different buckets here. All the the swirl of issues that we're talking about. I think for for the moment here, and I think we'll talk about this later, is the issue of Xi Jinping's actual political position and the security of his position. And and I don't know of any credible argument that Xi Jinping is worried about PLA tanks rolling down the street to unseat him from Zhongnanhai. Right. Um, right. And so we are often conflating a lot of these issues of as we talked uh, talked about at the top of the show. Um, what is grumbling versus what is pushback? And now pushback means a literal use of force to thrust someone off the position that they occupy. Um, that's not happening. And I don't think that was ever a serious concern. And again, we can talk about this later. But if you unpack what are the mechanisms that a leader needs to maintain and control a position of authority, Xi Jinping has not rested control, has not given up control of any of those and a, a an essay by a rogue intellectual or rumors of of elder pushback at Beidaha are not enough to turn the loyalty of the security services and the military, which are ultimately what keep you in power. So mm-hmm. I, I that's one bucket. These other things though are what you were mentioning, which I think is still significant. If we look at comparing where we were twelve months ago, it is actually it's quite remarkable the level of policy failures that we're seeing now come to light in China. And now the question is, are these a pathology that stem from how Xi Jinping is running affairs? I'm exaggerating, but as, as a one-man show, or are these the unavoidable trip-ups of a emergent global power? And the answer to that question, I think, will tell you a lot about how how extended this scrambling about Xi Jinping will be? Well,
1: Jude, you know, sort of, you've hinted at the question I wanted to ask next, which is that there's been this suggestion that since she has all the power, he's going to be blamed, you know, when it, for everything when everything goes wrong, and so that perhaps has caused him himself to deliberately take a lower profile. Does that make any sense? That argument?
2: Yeah, that's another sort of version of the pottery barn rule, you know, about if he owns it and it breaks, he ultimately buys it. But I think we underestimate the ability of political leaders to find an unending stream of scapegoats. And so while there certainly is some something to be said that as the CEO of everything, Xi Jinping ultimately should be taking the blame for policy failures, I think we have to uh, – I think we shouldn't overestimate the extent to which – As we know from the real
1: world, the CEO isn't usually the one who gets (laughs) (laughs) shafted. Of
2: course not. Exactly. So I think a lot of the criticism that has occurred over the past couple of months in regards to the U.S.-China trade war has been about Leo Ho's handling of these affairs. And so Liu is the one who got his wrist slapped. A lot of the criticism that we heard over the summer was about Wang Huning's handling of the cult of personality. And, and it seemed for a time as if he was getting his wrist slapped by being pulled out of the limelight. Now, in the end, Wang Huning emerged fine and triumphant and everything is okay. Um, But I think that hinted at the fact that Xi Jinping is not going to get on bended knee and apologize or take the blame for a failing because that's just not, as you said, Jeremy, the logic of the corporate boardrooms works the same as most organizations, which is the leader typically doesn't fall on their sword.
0: Let's quickly ID Liu He and Wang Huning. So Liu He, of course, is sort of the economic czar. He's sort of the person who's been tasked uh, with handling... Well, not, not just international trade deals, but also sort of the, the economy more generally. And while Huning is a party ideologue, uh, he is sort of the, the, academic who has risen to stardom and has become, uh, a member of the Politburo Standing Committee. Just, just for people who don't know. Uh, Jude, just now you mentioned rogue intellectuals. Uh, Xi surely has known that he's been pretty unpopular with a certain set of liberal leaning intellectuals in China. Uh, his ideological heavy handedness has no, really only deepened resentments for a lot of people. Uh, there was this guy at Tsinghua uh, named Xu Zhang and he wrote a scathing, if rather turgid and verbose, uh, missive. Was that a flash in the pan, a one off by a particularly brave critic, or, or do you think it's em- emblematic of more widespread dissatisfaction among intellectuals that, that may even boil over? And, and, and what's the party's reaction to this been? uh, besides, what you would expect more pronouncements about enhancing patriotism among intellectuals.
2: How you answer that question, I think, depends on how you want to see China's political system. Um, if you want to see uh, this as a rigid and brittle system where the top leader is, is sort of one mass protest away from falling or where a, a, an elite split is emergent, then I think you see Xu's essay as, as the first crack, the first visible crack in that, in that artifice. If you see this as a robust, strong regime, uh, then you see this as a sort of Mao Zedong-like tactic of uh, allowing some some extent of intellectual dissent to be made public, either to as they say, you know, lure the snakes out of the cave, or if this is to, to feign some degree of, of intellectual and ideological tolerance or flexibility. Uh, so but both of those, I think, are probably, you know, how you look at that will... Where, where do you come down? Yeah, where do you but come where, down? Where,
0: but where do you come down?
2: I finally crammed in the rest of the essay uh, late last night, I have to admit, uh, having skimmed it before, but but wanted to give it a close read before we before we talked about it's it. It's very man. long. It, it, it is very long, and, um, but I think... Um, what you notice about it is it does capture the zeitgeist of every single emergent problem or diagnosis that I think a lot of the intellectual class feels about where China is heading today. So mm. I, yeah. I think a good interpretation of it is that this is a an attempt to sort of allow all the grievances to be aired now um, and to be contained. Do
0: you um, think that it overstepped certain unwritten rules, though? Did, do you think that it... I mean, I felt like it still was sort of contained enough uh, that it didn't break the sort of unwritten rules uh, by which the loyal opposition is allowed to remonstrate
2: golly I mean it, 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 it again uh, who first of all who the heck knows what the rules are anymore? Right, right. Um, I think that's a that's another well,
0: we're hoping you do <laughs>
2: yeah that's another difficult position here I, I think the way the way that the guardrails we used to think at least a moderated controlled uh, channeled Chinese politics are are changing quite quickly now. and we're in uncharted territories, not only for us as as China watchers, but I think for the party as well. And um, this is really a new uncertain period for the party and how do you um, how do you handle what is clearly a, a retrogression back to an older form of Chinese politics, but in a hypermodern connected, World and the party has been crossing the river by feeling the stones on this for a while, and it think by controlling the digital commanding heights puts itself in a better position uh, to to moderate uh, any potential spillover. Um, but I think, and yet, Jude, they they haven't yet
1: uh, forced the deletion of uh, uh, the essay uh, of Zhuang Run's essay. It's apparently still up on the Unirule Economic Institute's uh, Tianzhe Guandian uh, website where it was first published. I mean, do you, would you have any sense of why that hasn't been taken down or the website blocked? I believe it's still accessible. And do you know what happened to Xu Zhangren? Or, you know, he wrote his, his Jeremiah uh, from Tokyo, I believe. And in a piece that uh, Jerry Cohen wrote for The Washington Post, he said that Xu is rumored to be suffering from cancer. Can you shed any light on any of this?
2: Yeah. And I think one thing I want to make clear is, is I don't think that Xu's essay was a sort of co-opted uh, attempt to, to moderate or, or constrain debate by playing into the party's hands. I think it was clearly a, a, quite a impassioned call by an intellectual who was at the sunset of his career and looking back at reform and opening and all of the, the great steps that China has made to not institutionalize, but to normalize politics. It must be quite quite stark and, and quite uh, drastic to see the the change in politics over the past couple of years. I think the question you're talking about, Jeremy, which is interesting is, why is it still there? Because the party doesn't lose too much sleep over deleting, abolishing, any sort of intellectual historical claim which it finds inconvenient. So going back to the the initial thesis, which, which is, is this allowed to hang out there to sort of serve as the, the fly strip for intellectual discord or, or dissent? That it still exists on the UniRule website may, may be an evidence of that. Now, I should also mention that Unirole is a close to defunct organization. It's not as if this has been allowed to exist on Phoenix News website or, or some other more prominent media platform. This is in the dusty corners of the internet right now. But I think it's its survival is telling. Now, on Shu himself, I don't know anything more than you do, uh, except that the rumors are that he is quite ill. Mm. Um, and so given what he has spent his intellectual life studying, and the types of individuals who he has studied, which is uh, intellectuals who often make these sorts of pleas to the emperor to change course direction, you can see this as being the last gasp of a proud, brave intellectual.
0: Right. He's, as as Rui did, bringing his coffin to remonstrate with the emperor. I, I wonder, though, if the way that it's written, I mean, it's utterly impenetrable, I think, to your average Joe or your average Joe. Um, they're not going to... It's this going to be something that it's 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 pretty rarefied stuff. I mean, I had a great deal of difficulty reading this thing, and I, I barely finished it. And I have to say, I mean, so many of the references were just completely lost on me. I had to, you know, fortunately, Jeremy may was good enough to sort of provide a lot of, of, of footnotes to the thing and explain a lot of the, the, the allusions, but I wouldn't have gotten a lot of them. And I'm sure that, you know, or, a lot of ordinary Chinese people wouldn't have gotten But I
1: gotten mean, the, them. the target reader is not the Lao Bai Singh, It's not the, this is, the, this the is common my point, person. Yeah. It's the elite, right? Right, right, exactly. Right.
2: This is This is unlikely to serve as a rallying point for a nationwide protest.
0: So uh I, I read a perspective on this whole business offered up by this psychiatrist uh by the name of Dr. Kenneth Decleva in an interview he did with uh the Diplomat. Diplomat has this great series of of, of interviews on Asian perspectives that I, I really quite enjoy. Anyway, I don't know whether you saw it, but uh he was with the State Department uh as some kind of a specialist in political psychology uh for many, many years, and he claims that uh this whole Xi Jong essay is actually evidence not of weakness, but of strength on the part of Xi. Uh, I don't know what you what you make of this argument or Jeremy what you made of that argument
1: that sounds like uh, what we call technically bull to me but um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, I don't, don't see know. how you can make a judgment of C strength based on an essay from an intellectual I mean you'll have to make the argument a little bit <laughs> well, I, that's not. Do you get me? That, yeah. I, I'm I'm
0: probably under under explaining what he what he wrote in this essay. That's not the only piece of evidence that he offers to suggest that she's actually in a position of strength. But yeah, I take your point.
2: I, I think the, the 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 argument he was making is that strong strong leaders allow some degree of, of dissent, and so that this in and of itself is a sign that she's position is stronger than we would think, because um, otherwise this essay would have would have wouldn't have lasted a, a second on the internet. So. Yeah,
1: But yeah, that doesn't actually make any sense to me because this, you know, this is only remarkable because of the last, you know, four years of nothing being allowed. So, uh, you know, this is an unusual sign that this thing was distributed. It's not that she has been allowing such essays, uh, uh, you know, on a regular basis, right? So uh, yeah, I don't know, Kaiser. I I don't make. My, yeah, know, maybe yeah. Jude is more sympathetic, but I I I don't see that. Seems like tea leaf reading to me. Uh,
0: another bit of tea leaf reading that I encountered. Um, but yeah, I mean, this I think it makes a little more sense to me. Uh, there was this essay in the Economist that looked at the Summers rumors and the apparent challenges, and it casts the whole current situation. I mean, whether you believe in in the actual substance of any of these rumors or not, uh, you know, we're we're seeing attention, of course. But they see it as one between, you know, uh, technocrats. Uh, uh, this is within the, within the party, between the technocrats who would argue for a, a loosening of sorts and the ideologues who want to extend party controls sort of into even m- more sectors of society. So this, to me, I read this and I immediately hearken back to the reds and experts in the 1960s and the 1970s. Jude, um, do, do you think that there's anything to this interpretation?
2: Uh, Yes. Um, I think folks will want to nitpick these gross simplifications of uh, or categorizations of Chinese politics of red versus expert conservative versus reformist. But unfortunately, you know, we need to use heuristics to make sense of incredibly complicated and opaque uh, systems. And and China is, is one of those. Sure. So if we broadly put into the, the bucket of technocrats what we could call the state council, uh, mm-hmm. people who work for the government, mm-hmm. uh, they will be party members, but they're, but they're, you know their paycheck will come come from the state council. These are the folks we think of who have been broadly pushing for China's economic modernization and, and integration. Um, and what you'd say is put politics second maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly though, the diagnosis from Xi Jinping and the people who uh, support him is that uh, politics has to be in command and that China had had tipped too far towards a sort of technocratic objectivity that put ideology to the side. And if your worldview is based on an idea that we shouldn't take unity for granted, that China is besieged, and that its red colors should never change, then I think you come in and you diagnose that China has really tilted too far towards, you know, bourgeois economic management. Um, so now what I think China's trying to do is to find a, to walk a middle road, so to speak, economic officials in the government who uh, obviously pay loyalty to the party, but are also trying to find a way to keep China's economic system working efficiently, you see that it actually can be quite a hard balance to strike. And so right now what we're seeing, we're in untested waters again here because uh, we've got the second largest economy in the world run by party apparatchiks who clearly put politics above everything else. Um,
0: So, you know, we talk a lot about Ideology now, uh, nowadays, I mean, it's very much in part of the conversation, but I think uh, no one has really said, answered to my satisfaction anyway. What is the substance of the ideology that we're talking about? Uh, if, if we are discarding that sort of technocratic objectivity, uh, the, the sort of shishiqiu kind of uh, mentality. What is in its place? I mean, it's certainly not orthodox Marxism. It's, it's not, you know, Maoism. There's, there's no collectivist, um, mentality behind it. What then is it? Is it just what you've said, you know, sort of the aggrieved reactive nationalism? Is it just, uh, w- w- what's the substance of it? I mean, where's the ideology?
2: A, a, a way that I try to make sense of this is just by by looking at sort of an issue near and dear to my heart, which is what do the neo-Maoists think? And one of the interesting things is they've they've turned to Xi Jinping quite abruptly after he came to power and uh, moved from being a dissident movement to really a pro-state, pro-party movement. And, and I remember talking to folks not long after that happened and, and asking why that was. And the ideology that they saw in Xi Jinping, which it took a lot of us a while to see, was one of unadulterated national greatness, and of a of, of someone who is unafraid to have the red banner fly high above the streets of Beijing and and, and Shanghai. And so it is a sort of revanchist national greatness, um, which puts China back in its position uh, at the center of the, of the universe, or an attempt to be at the center of the universe. And you'll use whatever whatever narrative and story helps to burnish those credentials which is why you see a sort of a form of marxism that xi jinping which i think is a legitimate form of marxism in terms of seeing the world in terms of the dialectic and of contradictions and of struggle uh, you see a form of maoism it's not a it's not a you know storm the barricades form of maoism but in terms of the political tactics that are used in terms of the importance of a co-opted controlled sort of mass you know, mass line in, in terms of putting ideology above all else. You seem you see a thread of Maoism. So Xi Jinping will use whatever's in the toolkit. Uh, well, so far so,
0: I hear just nationalism with a bit of dialectical materialism,
2: with a sprinkle of poverty alleviation.
0: <laughs> We've got the recipe going here.
2: Yeah, I, mean, I don't know what what more sophistication you'd be looking for.
0: I don't know. I mean, something that it's that that is sort of identifiably Marxist, or or I'm not sure. Yeah. So I guess. Sort of some teleological notion that, 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 that says the end goal is still a stateless society where it's from each according to his ability to each according to his means. I don't, I'm not sure. No, you, all I'm all not sure you have to be need, a <clears throat> need.
2: A, I mean, I think I don't think you have to be a thick Marxist. I think I, th- you know, in the same way that we all claim a heritage of Thomas Jefferson. Although I don't think we want, want to run our economy like Thomas Jefferson wanted us to run it. Um, I think you know agrarian we're, smallholders. We're, agrarian smallholding. I think we're you know in America Jeffersonianism is built into the DNA of this political culture. Okay. I think you can say that a form of Marxism in which sure you don't want a classless society. Sure, they're probably not going to abolish the state. But but one in which where they very comfortable with seeing black, white, and shades of gray in between in a way that Americans are not. I think we love the we love the gotcha moment of finding the photo of the Ferrari dealership with the poor Chinese peasant, you know, migrant walking by it. Right. That's our sort of aha, you know, brittle contradiction will not hold. <laughs> um, that doesn't bother, uh, I think, Xi Jinping, who, who is comfortable seeing the world in a in a resolution of or an attempt to resolve contradictions. So having a communist party uh, that is in charge of a, in many ways, a sort of freewheeling capitalist country, uh, only bothers us. Um, I think doesn't sort of keep Xi Jinping up at night. as h- how does he how does he resolve that? Um, I find that a Marxist tactic.
0: <laughs> that's great. No, that, that's 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 well said, Jeremy. Uh, Jim- our photo contest weren't, weren't like half the entries to our photo contest. <laughs> that stark juxtaposition. Uh, uh, yeah, that was sure. that was that, that
1: is a, a very appealing theme for uh, Western observers. Jude, the 40th anniversary of the inauguration of Reform and Opening is coming up now, and we're seeing a growing body of evidence that Xi Jinping, or at least the people around him, are making a concerted effort to downplay Deng Xiaoping as the architect of Reform and Opening Up, and put Xi and his father in a more central role.
2: What's going on here? I think in many ways, Deng Xiaoping's legacy is probably the most difficult for Xi Jinping to rectify. Um, I think the distance between Xi Jinping and Mao Zedong and and the, the control over the historical narrative helped by things like the 1981 historical resolution make the shadow of Mao relatively easy for Xi Jinping and the party to deal with. Deng Xiaoping is entirely different, uh, different animal, so to speak. Uh, for one thing... Deng, the the reform and opening era era, which if you were to believe Xi Jinping, we're still technically in. Mm-hmm. Um, the achievements of Deng Xiaoping, even within the first few years, far outshadow anything that Xi Jinping has been able to accomplish. You know, you had, you know, the what was it, the joint Sino-British declaration on returning Hong Kong, right. uh, which happened in what 1984. Mm-hmm. You had the normalization of relations with the United States in 1979. Um, you had the within by the mid 1980s, you had actual real material, credible gains on, on poverty alleviation in China by simply removing the boot of the party o- off the peasantry. So those gains far out overshadow anything that Xi Jinping has been able to accomplish, whatever you think about Belt and Road. But more importantly, what Xi Jinping is trying to do right now politically is the very negation of the Dungus project. If we think about dung's political and again I want to not for a moment overshadow dung's shortcomings and we can talk about nineteen eighty nine and we can talk about um, we talk about dung as a pragmatist but but he was a uh, a pragmatist who always fell on the side of protecting the party and was not was not afraid of to dispose of those who didn't but dung's signature achievements were uh, ending purges we right. don't we don't purge party members anymore was separating the party and the government strengthening the state council to give technocrats more. Uh, uh, more handling over over the economy. It was saying, we're never going to have another Mao. Right. We are going to move to normalize succession, not institutionalize it, but at least normalize it and, and put China back on a path of uh, integration. So I think- Changing
0: the entire composition of the party. Exactly. I mean, it, was, so, it, was, so, uh, it became technocrats.
2: How do you deal with that legacy in terms of both achievements and, and, and uh, the substance of what Deng wanted to do? You do it by airbrushing it out. And so that's we're seeing a very conscious rewriting of history, you know, before our very eyes right now.
0: It's chilling, really, truly chilling. Uh, Jude, last month, you published a client note in which you looked at scenarios for succession uh, in the event that, God helps, that that Xi Jinping is incapacitated or actually dies while in office. Uh, He's not young. Uh, He was born in June 53, which puts him at 65 now. Uh, And he's obviously got a a bit of a paunch and He's most certainly in a very high stress job. I don't know that Jung Ranhai is in the habit of publishing health reports on senior leaders, um, though I'm not sure that any would be more credible than the official reports that rather incredibly healthy, stable genius in the White House has been putting out through his doctor, but, uh, before we get into what you concluded here, um, there's, there's a matter of your claim that she is a smoker. Uh, we exchanged a couple of emails about this dude, about whether that's the case. I, I thought he had quit or maybe was maybe you know, as much of a smoker as Barack Obama had been with the occasional sneaky cigarette. And I cited as evidence his appearances, you know, along with his wife, Polivia, with Bill Gates in anti-smoking events uh, that were mentioned on the show that we did recently with Matthew Corman, which I hope you've all listened to. Uh, But you you seem to think otherwise, that he's still a smoker. What's your evidence?
2: Well, first, I just I I hate to to, um, to burst your bubble, but uh, politicians do lie. Uh, so so uh, the fact that Xi Jinping has been trumpeting uh, anti-smoking campaigns, I think, is a good example of do as I say, not as I do. So I I will say that I have heard from multiple sources independently and sources that I trust that Xi Jinping has not, as official propaganda would state, given up smoking entirely. What I also can say is I think he's more on the side of the Barack Obama type of smoking and less on the Deng Xiaoping uh, form of smoking, but nonetheless, as a, as a
1: former heavy smoker, I have to say th- that can only be true because he is able to stand and give a, a speech for six hours without a cigarette. I mean, he's no Deng peng or Mao Zedong with cigarettes. He's got a nicotine patch on. <laughs> <Yeah>. the, <laughs> the
2: the reason that was put in there is not to say that um, lung cancer is imminent. It was to put together a profile of, sure. of what we know about Xi Jinping's health and while i think there's no credible evidence that xi jinping's health will have a, any sort of catastrophic event in the next few years i guess what the point of the note was trying to think through i don't think it's zero the possibility of some sort of health event right. and let's assume it was something happened what's likely to occur now that there is no succession process and there's no designated successor one of the things i learned in in working on the note is succession is hard everywhere for everybody it's hard for corporations it's hard for modern democratic countries which have very clear regulations and robust regulations on on how a, a next leader moves into office We've seen examples in US, US history, after Reagan was shot, there was some confusion. I'm uh, in charge. Exactly, Alexander Haig got up and told the press, I am in charge, when in fact he wasn't. That was the Vice President, George W. H- H- Herbert Walker Bush. So succession is difficult everywhere. Now let's imagine the second largest economy in the world, one with nuclear weapons, um, and let's imagine what would happen if on, you know, what happens day zero if Xi Jinping falls ill? We know that the Politburo will probably hold an enlarged meeting, After that, we just don't know. And we're taking it on faith that they will have worked it out. And as I think through... Is there any provision
1: in the constitution or the party constitution for for this? I mean, is there any written guidance or...
2: Yeah, there is. Um, So in terms of the state, in terms of the government, it just says that the vice president will move to become the president. So that would be that would be Wang Qishan. Yeah. Um, Other than that, it just says the central committee will come together to meet and decide on who the successor for general secretary is. But that that candidate has to come from the current existing standing committee of the Politburo. So one of the six other members, so a Wang Huning, a Li Shu, <laughs> one of those would have to be, uh, would, a Li Keqiang would, would have to become the, the successor. Now, a whole series of questions fall from that, though, which is, is, is enough faith in the process agreed upon by all constituent parties where they will support that decision? I think that's a, that's an open question. I think we're likely to see a fair amount of economic instability in the in the days leading on from this as it takes, the longer it takes the, the Central Committee to arrive at a candidate, the more economic instability uh, will occur, and that will feed back into the decision-making process. So there's a lot of unknown unknowns here, which 30 years ago, given the relatively contained nature of China's economy and political system, we might not have mattered as much, but today they matter greatly.
0: Couldn't it also be the case that they would be quick convergence around Wang Qishan, just to to take all three positions. And I mean, he's, as far as I know, not an unpopular man. Well, okay. Oh, sure. He's purged an awful lot of people heading the uh, Discipline Inspection Commission. But
2: there's the one problem with that is uh, Wang Qishan has no party leadership position. He is, he after the 19th Party Congress, he stepped down from any and all party leadership positions. That's, He's that's not true. on the standing committee. He's not on the poll period. He's not on the central committee. He is just the vice president and an average party member. So he cannot, according to current you know guidelines, be the general secretary or the head of the central military commission.
0: Ah, uh, I see. Jude, you and I chatted recently about how there's this new body of academic work looking at uh, the actual operation of authoritarian governments, right? Uh, I, I assume authoritarianism in... Maybe fallen a little bit out of fashion as a subject of inquiry during the heady days after the, uh, the collapse of the Berlin Wall and, you know, the end of the Cold War. Uh, but, okay, without using the kind of academic language that makes Jeremy crazy. Uh, can, you, can you talk a bit about this new work on authoritarianism and and what light it might shed on Xi Jinping and the CCP today?
2: Yeah, I think um, just to just to satisfy uh, any you know Jeremy or anyone like myself who doesn't like to read through turgid academic prose, one of the really nice things about academic papers is you just read the beginning and the end, and you skip the math in the middle. Um, so so that's how I read these, um, and it shouldn't put anyone else off how how they're written. So I think. As, as you were alluding to, we had this period after the collapse of, of the Soviet Union where academic studies moved on from understanding authoritarian political systems and communism to the sort of post-era, post-communist systems, the transition to democracy. Um, but starting four or five years ago, I think you began to see a return to the field as people realized that history hadn't ended and that perhaps there still is some juice left in in authoritarianism. And so you had people like uh, Milan Sfolik at at Yale University. You also had my friend, uh, uh, Victor Schur at University of California, San Diego, start to be bringing in PhD students who are doing now formal modeling of authoritarian political systems. Hmm. And what's really interesting about it is, while I there is a black box in in China, or I like, I like to call it a dimly lit box, because I don't think it's entirely black, there's a deep underlying logic to how Authoritarian political systems operate, and so comparative politics, looking at what we know about how the Soviet Union operated under Stalin and how decision making was made, how decision making was made in under Mao, under Deng, under other authoritarian systems, actually can tell us a lot about the incentives faced, what holds authoritarian political systems together, mm-hmm. what brings what breaks them apart, and so uh, you know I've seen papers come out of the past couple of years which have had I think a pretty remarkable predictive capability. Uh, in terms of thinking through, for example, term limits in China. What holds term limits together uh, what's likely to see them break apart under more authoritarian systems, and so no, they won't tell us tomorrow who's going to be purged, but they might tell us a lot about how political institutions grow, fracture, and and morph.
0: Drop a couple of names. What are some of the uh, the papers that you think that we ought to be looking at to to better understand authoritarianism?
2: Uh, well, I just so happen to have one right here, uh, <laughs> <I see>. coincidentally. <laughs> so there's a paper by I don't know if it's Xiao Ma or Ma Xiao. Um, it's one of these difficult ones with only right without having the Chinese Li-Cheng, characters. Yeah, right. um, but this. Uh, uh, this was in the Journal of East Asian Studies in, in 2016. And that, that issue was guest edited by, by Victor Schur. Um, and it's called Term Limits and Authoritarian Power Sharing. It puts out a model of what holds term limits together. And it predicts that when essentially you see power tip uh, away from any balancing factors and towards a one single strong dictator, you're going to see the erosion of term limits. And so sure enough, we saw in, in March of this year that term limits uh, uh, went out the window. And so the other one I would recommend, which is starting at the beginning, is a a book by Milan Svolik, who's at Yale, called The Politics of Authoritarian Rule.
0: That's S-V-O-L-I-K, Svolic.
2: Which is uh, published by uh, Cambridge University. And again, skip the math in the middle, but fascinating, fascinating observations about, again, elite cohesion in authoritarian political systems, what helps power sharing, what keeps regimes in power for longer, what leads to collapse. And I think as we move into a more opaque political system in China, it's understanding the sort of the deep logic that's going to help us uh, rather than chasing, chasing the rumors.
0: I'm going to go with uh Ma Xiao, probably and uh, and
1: Milan Svolik. Excellent. Thanks. Jude, in in that client note on succession, you are pretty clear about your conviction that she will not voluntarily relinquish power at some point and I was pleased to see that because I think I've been saying that since 2013. But my logic has always been that you don't build so much power in your put so much power in your own hands and centralize so much power with the purpose of letting it go but your argument is somewhat different your logic is that um, he needs to stay because he's actually made too many enemies and if he is no longer in power uh, he and his clan will suffer you've drawn comparisons to Stalin and to Putin today right could, could you um, talk about this a little bit?
2: I think there's several reasons why I'm uh, as confident as I'll be about anything that Xi Jinping will not voluntarily retire. The the first one, which which you just alluded to, is what we could call the Putin problem, which is when you come to consolidate power in a non-institutional manner, basically when there's a lot of dead bodies you had to metaphorically or literally step over, that leaves you fairly insecure in that power. And so, for example, one of the things that frustrated me over the past year is when we talk about... Xi Jinping's consolidation of power as if there's an end state to that, one of the things about getting to the throne is you then have to spend the rest of your time defending that position from from real and imagined enemies. Uh, And that struggle never ends. And so for Xi Jinping, there's a there's a whole group of people who are locked up in Qingcheng prison right now uh, and whose vested interests have been been busted, whose uh, iron rice bowl, whose whose rent seeking ability was smashed by Xi Jinping. So he will only be able to step down from power by which we actually mean he will only be able to give up direct control over the military and security services when he feels absolutely certain that his family and his fortune will be will be perfectly secure and I have a hard time imagining that uh, being the actual case for for, for Xi Jinping. But the other reasons are just about the trappings of power that I think make it unlikely that Xi Jinping will, will step down. We don't, as I was telling Kaiser before the show, the reason we know about George Washington and, and before that, Cincinnatus as, as voluntarily giving up power is because those are the exceptions to the rule. Once again, you gain power of the throne, you don't give it up for, for various reasons. And I think when we think about Xi Jinping's aspirations for China, those aren't likely to be achieved in the next few years. The other problem is there is no successor and there won't be a successor because as soon as you announce a successor, he then becomes a potential threat, which is why almost every leader in China has struggled with bringing someone in behind them. Most famously, Mao Zedong could never get that right, which is why he died in power.
1: Jude, there's one more question I'd like to ask you. Uh, Did you read the recent essay by Bill Overholt, which was saying that you know, the conventional wisdom is wrong, she isn't strong, he's weak. Um, And if you did, uh, what did you make of his argument?
2: Uh, you know, a, a let a hundred flowers bloom. I always like to, to see uh, lots of different opinions on this. I think the first of all, I, I chafe a little bit at the uh, we got China wrong thing. One of the things I don't like about it is it makes it as if uh, it, it was only sort of outside folks who were misdiagnosing where China was going and where it's headed. But I think anyone who travels to China will find that there's a diverse range of opinions about what the future of the country holds or where they thought the trajectory was heading, who are now eating their hats. So I, let's not arrogate to ourselves sort of this, it, it was ours to get wrong in the first place. Right. We all got this wrong, and no one was predicting, and none of my friends, at least in China, were predicting in, in 2011 that here in 2018 we'd be having a discussion about a personality cult and a return return of Mao. So that that's just my sort of first meta point on any of these, like, buyer's remorse of, you know, we, we we got this all wrong. But I do lean a little bit to his side insofar as I think, while I don't think tanks are coming down the street for Xi Jinping tomorrow, I do think that the declarations of complete and total confidence are masking a permanent sense of vulnerability that is infused onto the DNA of every party leader. And part of it is they know that small things can become big, like the party started with 13 or 14 people in a room in Shanghai 100 years ago and morphed into what it is today, there's a permanent sense that, you know, what they call yohuan sort of awareness of problems around the corner, always is infused in, in the party system. So in that sense, I think while we can make the statement that in the history of China, never has there been a stronger political entity than the Communist Party in 2018 in terms of its control of the military, funding sources, organization and discipline. I think we can also say that the party is riddled with insecurities and uncertainties about the future. Uh, and so but there's another Marxist contradiction, which I'm, I'm comfortable with.
0: Comfort with Contradictions is absolutely essential to this whole business that we're in, right? So, great. Jude, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, We're looking forward to chatting with you again real soon. Uh, Before we pack up here, let's do our recommendation segment. Uh, But first, I do want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. Make sure to sign up for SubChina's premium access membership, where you'll get all sorts of extras, discounted, or free admission to our numerous events, an ad-free early version of the Cynical Podcast, uh, access to certain content. And, of course, to our Slack channel, where you can chat with us, uh, the editorial team, live. Speaking of the podcasts, do check out some of the other shows in our growing network of China-related podcasts. There's the Caixin Syndicate Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, which has just gotten really, really good recently. I have I cannot recommend it more highly. And the New Voices podcast, which is also just getting great. More are in the works, so watch this space. And on to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off, man.
1: Okay, I've got one uh, thing that's uh, kind of uh, vanilla, or at least it's not a particularly unusual one. It's Ronan Farrow's book, uh, The War on Peace, which I'm just about finished. And it's, it's really, really interesting. And it makes oh, clear good. that a lot yeah. of the trends going on in the United States now, we can't blame everything on Trump. Oh, shoot. <laughs> Damn. Uh, good, good Sorry. recommendation. Sorry, Kaiser. <laughs> okay. It's not all his Jiggly fault. There were no, actually no, a few know, problems person. here before Trump. I, I, I you know, um, arrived here the year before he was elected, so I can, I can vouch right. for that.
0: Jude, <laughs> what do you have for us?
2: Uh, I have a recommendation from my favorite website, YouTube, which I spend an inordinate amount of time watching Russian dash cam videos and other things. <laughs> but um, this is a series that my wife turned me on to. It's called uh, Epic Rap Battles of History. Oh, yeah, I love this. Um, and one in particular I'd like to recommend from 2013 is Rasputin versus Stalin. Um, <laughs> it's a great way to learn about uh, how, how uh, closed political systems uh, work through, uh, I think, a, a, a okay rap.
0: Uh, we're going to have to go out on that, I think. That's that's definitely what it is. So um, that's great. I mean, I love those. Those are really fun. Uh, I've, I've I've always enjoyed them. They're very clever. Uh, so, well, first of all, let me just throw in one quick recommendation because you just said YouTube. Uh, I, I, my favorite YouTube guy of late is Randy Rainbow. I don't know if you've seen his stuff. It's just amazing. Uh, a couple that I would highly recommend so he does you know, parody songs it's this high camp like flamboyantly gay dude uh, who who's just lampooning the Trump administration the whole time the the, the one that he did recently to the tune of um, Beauty and the Beast from the Disney movie Rudy and the Beast San Giuliani that was from the spring and then one that just came out a couple of days ago is if you ever get impeached, or if you ever got impeached, to the tune of "If I Only Had a Brain," uh, from the Wizard of Oz, uh, it's it's marvelous. So, I mean, he's a one man show. My my little brother actually knows him. His surname actually is Rainbow. He, I've never asked whether his first name is actually Randy, but the, the more remarkable part is this actual surname Rainbow, which is. Maybe legally changed some general like during maybe the, the, the stonewall generation or something. But, uh, this was, uh, this is, this is great stuff. My, my real recommendation though, not my off the cuff Jude recommendation is Theodore Roosevelt National Park in Western North Dakota, uh, where I've spent very recently a few days camping. Oh my God. So, you know, you, you're all familiar with the Badlands of South Dakota. It's the same kind of terrain. It's the northern stretch of the Badlands. Uh, but the, the difference mainly being that there's, you can get a campsite there, which, which is very nice, uh, in this little riverside cottonwood grove. Delicious, delicious weather. And oh, it's, it's marvelous. And, Bison and prairie dogs and all sorts of wildlife that you can have quite close encounters with. Uh, as FanFan Fan and I did, actually, we were you know driving along on their little scenic loop drive the night before we were going to leave, hoping that we would see bison again one last time. We'd only seen them from you know quite a ways off, and this time there was one right on the road, and we rolled up slowly right next to him. Uh, at my insistence, FanFan Fan even put the window down, and we got some video footage of this guy. He's enormous. Wow. It was they're, 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 they're so weird looking. They're like prehistoric looking. Anyway, uh, Theodore Roosevelt National Park. And thanks so much to Eric Mikester, who hails from Fargo, North Dakota, for, for telling me about this place and recommending that we camp there because it was everything he said it would be. Anyway, uh, Jude, thanks again once, once more for, for taking the time. It was just great to talk to you. And, uh, we're gonna see each other in Durham pretty soon for that concert next spring, right? Yes. All right. That'll be, that'll be fun. Uh, Jeremy, man, great to talk to you as always. Yeah. Thank you, and I'll be talking to you again in a couple of hours. Yes, you will be. The Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn and edited by me. Drop us an email at seneca at supchina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at supchina news. Make sure to leave us a positive review on the iTunes store and spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care.
3: Cool oh, yeah. <laughs> mustache, Mario. Private with the madman, to be sorry. Oh, how many dictators does it take to turn an empire into a union? The ruin the state it's a disgrace what you did to your own people. Yo daddy beat you like a dog and now you're evil You're from Georgia, sweet Georgia And history books unfold ya As a messed up motherfucker bit in the mind You are a superpower but it paid the price With the endless destruction of Russian lies You're a man of steel, I spit kryptonite Big dick, mystic, sick, known to hypnotize I can end you with a whisper to your eyes it into my eyes, you perverted witch See the soul of the man who made Mother Russia his bitch You think I give the fuck about my wife? My own son got locked up in prison and I didn't save his life You got off easy when they pickled that loose cock I'd leave your neck in a noose to a trench and shot your whole family, shot All your wizard friends, shot I never would sold you pierogi, shot starving for days till you waste away I even crushed the motherfuckers when I'm laying insane i of have let it Trotsky out of the picture Drop the hammer on you harder than I bitch slapped Hitler I have no pride for you who ruined everything My revolution was doing to stop the bourgeoisie I fought the bondage of classes The proletarian masses and brought me here to spit a thesis against both of your <laughs> Frank. Design. Looking like something out of R.L. sign. It's hip-hop tower, red of a white This is ours why so I can't do shit tonight young, you were supposed to be my right-hand man But your loyalty shriveled up like your right-hand man My whole future was bright You let your heart grow dark It's not the greatest revolution since the birth of Marx Knock, 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 knock Did somebody say Marx? Yo, so I'm the host with the most, class though. No. Assholes made a mess and the war got Somebody say real power. die You want to mess with me? I spit hot boards when I'm crushing these beats. But we don't-